Second Chronicles 34, verse 1 through to 8. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the eighth year, <laughs> in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. In his twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah, poles, and idols. Under his direction, the altars of the Baals were torn down. He cut to pieces the incense altars that were above them and smashed the Asherah poles and the idols. These he broke to pieces and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars, and so he purged Judah and Jerusalem. In the towns of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali and in the ruins around them, he tore down the altars and the Asherah poles, and he crushed the idols to powder and cut to pieces all the incense altars throughout Israel. Then he went back to Jerusalem. In the 18th year of Josiah's reign, to purify the land and the temple, he sent Shaphan, son of Asaliah, and Masiah, the ruler of the city, with Joah, son of Joahaz, the recorder to repair the temple of the Lord his God. And everybody said, wow. No, nothing? All right. It was a test. Well, let me just say, first of all, welcome to Church at Five. Glad you're here today. And uh, some of you were here last week. Some of you are just getting back uh, this week for the first time since our summer break. So an extra special welcome to you guys. And if you're here for the very first time and you've never been here before and you don't have any clue who's talking to you right now, I'm Brandon. And I'm the service pastor here for this English service. And yeah, I'm excited to be here. Hope you guys are too. I can't see you, so I'm just going to assume you're as excited as I am. There's some, there it is. I like you. So, we're going to be jumping into week two of our current four-week series. Revived, renewed, restored, the tale of King Josiah. And it's not behind me. And I want to start by kind of looking at what we did last week. We started with an introduction to Josiah. That's excitement there. So we started with an introduction to Josiah because you might be wondering, who is Josiah? Who was he? Who is this king you're talking about? Now, you won't find the book of Josiah, if you didn't know. And some of you may have never even have heard of King Josiah. Or maybe you've heard of him, kind of, maybe you, in reading through the Bible one year, you've read through his story, the name pops in your head, but you don't have any connection to his story and it doesn't really stand out to you in any significant way. Well, this was a huge part of why this series was so heavily laid on my heart. Because, as my wife just mentioned, our son's name is Josiah. And uh, he's named for this very king, King Josiah, who was the king of Judah. 
and uh, around the year 609 BC. And often, when people ask me about my son's name, like, where did you come up with Josiah? Who's that? Do you have like an uncle named Josiah? Like, what's that? Where'd you get that from? Uh, I find that often when I say, well, it's, no, King Josiah, they're like, uh, King who now? And so I thought, well, this is, this is an important thing, it's an important story to go through, because it kind of reminds us that the Bible has a lot of things in it that sometimes we overlook, sometimes we miss or forget, and we can always go in deeper. He is a lesser-known character. Uh, Josiah is definitely not one of the more famous ones that pops in our heads when we think of Old Testament characters like Moses and David and all of the other more well-known, renowned stories of the Old Testament that we would have all learned growing up. But nonetheless, he is an important character, and that's why I find it unfortunate that we don't know him as well as we could. He's not only a good king and a great king for his time, but he was incredibly unique in a lot of ways. We looked at that last week at a lot of the key things that he was unique in. So if you didn't hear it, you can listen to it online. Uh, We won't go through all of those again, but he was incredibly unique amongst most of the kings that we can read in God's word. Now this whole story is found in two different books. We see his tale kind of told in 2 Kings uh, chapter 22 and 23 and in 2 Chronicles 34 and 35. And we'll be jumping a little bit between the two. They're basically the same story, just told sometimes in a little bit different way or different emphasis at different parts. So we'll kind of be looking at both. The idea is we want to be looking at the character himself and some of the things that he did and what makes him unique and his story unique. And another thing that we pointed out last week, his story also begins decades before he came when he was promised to come. During the uh, time of Jeroboam, who was an evil king, uh, uh, as they were kind of uh, building altars that would be used to sacrifice to foreign gods, there was a prophet that came and said that there will be a king that will come, his name will be Josiah, and he's going to destroy all of these idols, destroy all of these, uh, kind of bring the people back to God. He's going to bring a type of revival for a season and the land. And so he was even promised, long, and that's in 1 Kings 13, verse 2, if you want to look at that. And uh, that's kind of what we looked at last week. The message for today is titled Revived. So we're going to be looking at our first of our re uh, words. So we have revived, renewed, and restored. And today we're going to be looking at revived. But before we get into how through Josiah and by his actions we see this revival of the people of Judah and the surrounding tribes, as we saw in the text today, it wasn't just in Judah, just Jerusalem, it was in all of the surrounding tribes that were still kind of loyal to Judah. Uh, all of them are affected, and we see all of them kind of revived in some way by the end of his story. So let's start with a brief recap that I think is key. This is what we looked at last week, but I think this is really key to understanding what we're going to be looking at today. So Josiah was a great man, And a great king for a lot of reasons. But as we read in the text today, I'll read again in verse 2. This is above all, I think, in his entire story. This is what sets him apart. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. He did what he was what his father David did. He did what was right. He followed God. He's not only 
he's not only the king that followed God. He's not the only king that followed God, sorry, um, of all of the kings that we can read of throughout the history of Israel and Judah. But what makes him so unique is that he followed him so completely, so wholeheartedly, despite what he was born into. And again, last week we looked at this. Josiah's grandfather, his name was Manasseh. You can read about him just a few chapters before. He did evil in the sight of God. He worshipped other gods. He even built temples and altars, set up places to worship other gods in God's house in the temple of God. He did human sacrifices. He even sacrificed one of his own sons to a fire god. But worst of all, Manasseh, Josiah's grandfather, led the people away from God. He began to mold the culture into a negative direction, away from their past, away from their connection to the Lord. And Manasseh's son, Ammon, who was Josiah's father, he followed in his dad's footsteps, leading the people even further away from the Lord, worshiping and sacrificing to idols. And they changed the culture. They changed the culture to be a place where idol worship was commonplace, where even the temple of the Lord had been let to fall into ruins. This is the culture Josiah was born into. A culture of idol worship that was, had drifted and was distant from God. Despite all this, he still did what was right. He followed God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's not, and what we really noted last week that I wanted you guys to remember and maybe note again if you're here for the first, if you weren't here last week, He's not identified in the text as a son of Ammon, who is his birth father. What is he identified as? He's called a son of David. He did what his father David did. Why is that important? Because from this we concluded last week that this leaves us without an excuse. No matter where we come from, no matter who our parents were, no matter how messed up we think we are or how messed up we think we've made our lives, no matter what culture we've been born into, we are without excuse because we are not the product of our culture alone. We are not merely the product of our parents. We are adopted children of God. And this is our true identity. And so in the end, we can, as Josiah did, answer the question, well, am I doing the work of my father? Well, it's not my... Dad, that's not the culture I'm born into. That's my heavenly father. And this brings us to our focus for today. And how through Josiah and his doing right, his following God, doing as his father David did, we see the culture also around him was revived. Now let's look at that word revived. Dictionary definition of revived is to restore to life consciousness or strength to give new strength or energy to something or someone. So in this case, to the people of Judah and the surrounding tribes, first through Josiah. At Josiah's birth, where his story began, the people were weak in their relationship with God. 
lost in their consciousness of who God really was. That he was Lord, creator of, and God of those of them. That they were his people. They let the temple fall into decay. And they'd forgotten the Lord. This is where Josiah's story began. But at Josiah's end, a radical revival had taken place. Had taken hold of the people. And for a season, the nation of Judah is revived. Unfortunately, it's just a season. After, shortly after Josiah's death, the people fall again away from the Lord and then are taken into captivity by the Babylonians. But that had been something that had been long foretold for generations that that would take place. But because of Josiah's actions, God prolongs that and allows for a time of revival in that culture. Today we're going to look at three actions, three key actions and decisions that King Josiah made that led to his being personally revived, so given a new strength, given a new energy, an awareness in his consciousness, and how he had an effect on the entire surrounding culture. And my hope is that we today would be empowered by this, encouraged by this, strengthened by this, to follow these actions in our own life and to seek to see our culture, to see this city where we are, to see our surroundings begin to be transformed as Josiah did in his time. So from the text we read, there are more things we'll be looking at through the rest of this series, but through the text we read, there are three key events laid out for us so and that's going to be our focus we're going to go through each of them in the remainder of our time so i'll read through them first so you know where we're going so the first thing is josiah set in his heart it says he began to seek the lord he began to seek the lord that's number one number two that we'll look at is he removed all the idols from the land destroyed every single one of them completely in his city and all of the surrounding tribes and number three he rebuilt the temple that his grandfather had let fall into ruin so he sought the lord he removed the idols and he rebuilt the temple and those are going to be our focus so let's look at the first one the first event mentioned right at, in the beginning of the text verse three i'll read it again in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David. Now, pretty significant. He became king at eight. That means he's only 16. That's very young. I was of a different mind at 16. In the States, that's when you get your driver's license, so it's like a total different ball game. It's like freedom, do what you want. And here's Josiah at 16, making a decision to seek the Lord. And he devoted himself to seeking after the Lord. He did this, again, despite the actions of his father, of his grandfather, of what he would have known growing up, the stories he would have heard of his father and his grandfather and how they sacrificed their son, of the culture that surrounded him and how they all worshipped other gods and idols and had drifted away from the Lord. This is what he knew growing up, and yet at 16, he made a decision that he was going to follow after 
his father David. His identity is as a son of David, the man after God's own heart. He's not moved or molded by the culture that he's born into, as we so often, so easily can be. And ultimately, because of this, the culture around him is molded by him. So what does it say? He began to seek. He began to seek the Lord. Well, what does that tell us? It tells us that there's a moment. There's a moment when he stopped and made a conscious choice that he was going to go deeper. He wanted to know more. He wanted to be closer to the Lord. He began to seek the Lord. He was going to seek after God. It's here that a revived heart begins. This is the beginning of a revived heart. That moment when we begin to seek the Lord. When we make that decision, I will seek after the Lord. It's in this moment that it becomes more than just a belief. Not just that God exists. It's more than just the doctrine of a deity. Of who God was or how was God and what exactly is it all mean? It's more than just a doctrine of a deity. It's, it's when we seek God that he becomes more than a self-help number. God, I'm in trouble again. Can you help me? God, I'm in trouble again. He's more than that. It's when we decide to seek him that he becomes more than just an advice column on, or a life coach on, okay, what do I do now, God? What do I do now, God? When we begin to seek him, it becomes more intimate. It becomes a relationship. Have you ever been in a relationship? Really wouldn't work well the way that sometimes we interact with God. What do I do now? What do I do now? Can you help me? Can you help me? That's not a relationship. But when we seek God, we're beginning something more intimate, something deeper. When we begin to seek God, to pursue Him as one who is to be sought, one who is to be treasured, we begin to understand the true nature of God and the true nature of our relationship with Him. What does it mean, though? He began to seek the Lord. Well, what does Jesus say when He is asked, what's the greatest commandment? What is the one thing that we should be focused on, the one thing that we should do above all else? When asked that question, what does He say? In Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is a God-centered thinking. This is a life built around seeking after Him, to love Him with all that we are. So let God be the deepest desire of your heart, your treasure, the thing you seek after. This is to love Him with all your heart. Let your soul be connected to Him in all your pursuits, bringing Him into every emotion, every feeling, every experience. This is to love Him with all your soul. Meditate on His Word. Don't just read the Bible. Don't just memorize it. Don't just know it, but meditate on it, that it goes deep down within you. As the psalmist said, that this is, the, this is how we become a tree planted by a stream of living water, is to meditate day and night on the Word of God. 
This is to seek him, to know him as we would in any relationship, to make that decision to begin to seek the Lord. And as I mentioned, it's not just believing in the Lord. What does James say in 2.19? James 2.19, you believe that there is one God, good. You could also say good for you. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. Josiah believed and yet he also began, he made a choice to seek the Lord. Often I hear, we hear people talk about, God, what am I supposed to do with my life? What do I do? What am I I supposed to do for you? And those are important questions. We want to know what God might be calling us into and and how he might want to be working things through us in our lives. But first, just seek him as the goal. Not the goal is, the goal isn't to find out what we're supposed to do. The goal is God. He is the goal. He is the means to the end. What does Jeremiah 29, 13 tell us? You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. This is where we start. To seek him with all we are. This is when we find him. And it's not a suggestion. It's not a, well, maybe if I have time. This is a promise. When we seek him with all our heart, we will find him. He will be there. Seek after him as your greatest treasure. God is to be in a place in our hearts where our deepest longings lie. Where our deepest longings lie. Psalm 14.2 The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God, when his eyes gaze upon this place, it's my hope that he sees a room full of us seeking after him. What does that mean? To understand. Those who understand, those who understand this truth, that he is worthy to be sought after, that he is the ultimate prize, the goal. He is what we seek after. Everything else is all-encompassing. It all comes along with it, what we're supposed to do for God and how our life will end up in serving Him. Those are all byproducts of seeking Him. Start there. Make Him the goal. This is the understanding. And when we do it, we will find Him. And this is my hope, that we would be a place where we know this and understand this, that we want to know Him more to see him, to experience his presence as we just sang today, to experience the presence of God and to understand him in our mind as we meditate on his word. So that's the first thing that we see. He began to seek the Lord. What's the second thing? He removed the idols. He removed the idols. He purged the land of the idols of the high places, the Asher poles. Asher poles are just uh, sometimes a tree, sometimes a carved wooden or metal object. They were usually near an altar. And this, what's significant is this was common and taken from the Canaanites. The Canaanites are also dwelling around this area. But they were the people that God said, 
the Israelites need to get out as, they brought, as God brought them into the promised land and they didn't obey God. And now they're being affected constantly by the culture all throughout the Old Testament. Again and again, we see the effects of the Canaanites on them. And this is one of them. These idols came from the surrounding culture. So here in Josiah's time, as king of Judah, the people have adopted this practice. They've taken on the culture around them at the cost of forsaking the true God, their true Savior, their true Creator. But he removed the idols. So what are idols? Well, dictionary definition first. An idol is an image or other material object representing a deity to which religious worship is addressed. This is what we see in the text. But the definition goes on, or any person or thing regarded with admiration or devotion. Now, idol worship is something that we inherently know is wrong because it goes all the way back to the Old Testament law that God gave through Moses. I'll read that really quick just so we can have that in our minds. Exodus 20 Verses 4 through 5, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So idols can sound quite distant from us. Well, okay, we're, not, we're in the new covenant. We're not, we're not under the old law anymore. So where does this fit? It can sound really foreign to us. Most of us probably don't have any wooden or metal statues in our room that we're bowing down and praying to in secret. Like, well, you know, when God's not looking, I'm going to bow down quickly to this. But don't be fooled. Idol worship is as prominent today as it's ever been for the last thousands and thousands of years. And we're in danger of adopting the idols of our culture around us. We're in danger of bringing in their objects of worship into our own hearts. So what are idols today? What's the new covenant version of this image? Let's read Colossians 3, 5-6. through six. And there's a lot to be said about idols and modern idols interpretations of what idols are in the new covenant but i think this is a good place to start and rest for today so colossians 3 verse 5 through 6 put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature sexual immorality impurity lust evil desires and greed which is idolatry because of these the wrath of god is coming so in all these sins and there are other lists we could look at. We could, again, go on and on. But Paul tends to always paint it back to this image. Puts them all into one encompassing sin, which is idolatry. They're idols. And this brings this great sin of idolatry into our modern age, into the new covenant, into our lives today. Because all of these sins have one common denominator, don't they? And that is that they're in the heart. They are idols of the heart. Idols are anything that we set as our heart's primary desire above 
God. It's not, it's not wrong to want things. It's not, it's not wrong to desire things. But when those desires become above God in our deepest parts of who we are, it becomes an idol. It's the craving. It's enjoying. It's the wants and desires of our hearts. When God isn't our ultimate satisfaction, we have an idol. So what is that practically? Well, it's anything, anything or any person loved more than God. Anything or any person wanted more than God, desired more than God, treasured more than God, enjoyed more than God. It could be a girlfriend or a boyfriend. It could even be a husband or wife. It could be your good grades and your education and your status as educated. It could be the approval of others, how others see you or perceive you. It could be success and business and money and power. It could be sexual stimulation. It could be any hobby you have. The question becomes, where and in what am I most satisfied? Most deeply satisfied. What do I seek and treasure above all other things? Are we most satisfied in sex, sexual immorality, impurity, lust? This can be anything. Pornography, lust, impure thoughts toward others that are not your husband or wife. Even just the idea of the perfect man that's supposed to come into your life or the idea of the perfect woman, these can become idols. Things that we seek more than God. I love God, but man, I really want to be married to that perfect guy, to that perfect woman. Those can become idols, things that we seek more than God. It can be evil desire, that's hatred toward others, unforgiveness, It can be a deep desire to see others fail at our benefit in the workplace, in in home, in school, whatever it might be. It can be greed, and a better translation of that word, as the the ESV uh, translates it, covetousness, which is the desire for things, specifically the things that others have, which can be money, it can be power and authority in our workplace that we want to have the authority, we want to have the, you know, the respect of people. We can crave that more than we love the Lord. To crave our status, to have the perfect online persona so that when people scroll through our Instagram, our Facebook, they're like, man, their life is so good. They have it all together. We can crave that, that attention more than the Lord. An idol of the heart is anything that takes the rightful place of God at the center of our lives. Being satisfied by anything that we treasure more than Him is an idol. Again, it's not wrong to want these things. There's a lot of good things and all that, and we don't have time to get into that. We're talking about ultimately, and the, the question I always have to ask myself is, could I, get, could I give this up for the Lord if he asked me today, oh, I love this guitar, it's so awesome. If God told me to give it away, could I? If I lost it, would I still remember that I have Christ? 
And that can be with anything we seek. The question is, could I, give this, could I lose this and still be as whole because my identity is not in that thing? It's in Christ and my relationship with the Lord. So what do we do to remove these idols from the high places in our lives and in our hearts? I think Colossians 3 said it best. Put it to death. Put it to death. And the beginning of this is we can ask the Holy Spirit, we can seek God through the Holy Spirit who dwells within us and say, reveal in my heart the idols. Reveal the things in me that I put higher than you. As we read God's word, we can try to be sensitive, to soften our hearts to what the Spirit might have to say about the things that maybe are too important to us and have moved into the place of an idol in our hearts. And as the Holy Spirit reveals these things to you, even when it's painful, quickly confess it. Acknowledge it before God. God, I, I care about this too much. I care about this too much. It has become an idol in my heart. That's confession. And then we surrender it all to Jesus. And that's repentance. God, I, I lay, Jesus, I lay it at your feet. You are all I need. That's repentance. So in order to be able to fully love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, we must also simultaneously remove those things that have become idols in our hearts. The idols where the influence of the culture around us has penetrated into our own hearts. As we saw in the time of Josiah, they had taken on the culture around them and Josiah rejected this. He destroyed it. He put it to death, crushing them to to dust, it said. He rejected the idols, removed them, and sought the Lord. We must do both, to seek the Lord and to put to death the idols from within our heart. I know we've all experienced it. I have. I've had moments where I've idolized things. I've raised things up as too important in my own life, whatever it might be. But I've learned ultimately that nothing can truly compare to God. Nothing can compare to Him. And how can we even really try to compare anything to Him anyway? Can we hold God in our hand and our idol in the other and compare the two? God is the creator of the hand and the object and the person. Whatever the idol may be, nothing in creation can stand up in comparison to God as creator. So how foolish we are at times when we idolize the creation or the concept of creation such as power, authority, Money, success, security, relationships, sex, when we, in reality, can find all of these things, all of these things, at their best, in their best form, in their highest quality, as they were meant to be enjoyed and experienced, these are only found in and through God and our relationship with Him. Matthew 6.33 Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first his kingdom. 
and his righteousness, all these other things will be gathered, will be given unto you. Sorry, I've memorized it in a different version than what I'm reading. The point is that he and he alone can truly satisfy. And when we seek him first, we will be fully satisfied, fully loved, fully known, fully appreciated, and all else, all idols fade into the surpassing beauty of knowing God as our Father. So begin to seek God and put to death the idols in your heart. And it's a continuing thing as we go through life. Doesn't can't just do it once. They are like trees in our lives. They just keep growing back. Put them to death. So let's look quickly at the third thing Josiah did. He rebuilt the temple. Now this really stood out to me because the temple is where God was. He said, "This I will build a house for myself amongst you. He said, my, this is where my name will, will be spoken. This is the place where people came to encounter the presence of God because that's where it was. In the house of God, in the temple, where God was represented to the people. They came from all around to go to the temple. This is where God was represented. The people had put idols. They had put foreign objects to worship in the house of God. And then ultimately, they even let the house of God begin to deteriorate, to fall into ruin as time went on. Now, why is this so important? Why do I... What are we talking about? This is Old Testament. How does that connect with us? Well, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 brings it into the new covenant. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies We are the temple today. It's not a building. God is in us. Through Jesus Christ, we receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the presence of God. It's not not over there. He's not in some big, nice, beautiful building. He's in us. He's where we are. So to honor God with our bodies, which is a big topic we could get into, But ultimately, it's to put to death the idols of our heart. That in our hearts, there would be no idols to foreign gods, as was the case in Josiah's day. There were idols to foreign gods within the temple. Do we have that? Is our temple in order? Is it a place that represents God's presence? Or have foreign gods been put there to be worshipped instead? And why this is so vital for us today when I get to our ultimate goal to be not only revived personally, but to revive the culture around us. It doesn't stop with us. I don't want us all to go home and feel really good about ourselves and then tomorrow wake up and forgot all of it. Or to even 
be changed, but don't do anything to the culture around us. We ultimately need to be an influence in the culture around us. What is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20 through 21? We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Whoa. That's a really big text that we don't have time to unpack. But what I want you to hold on to is that we're the ambassadors of Christ to the world. So our seeking Him, our seeking to be revived in our own hearts, it isn't just about us. It's not just about me or you. He dwells within us. We become a place of the presence of God. He makes us righteous before God through Jesus Christ so that we're no longer, we don't have to fear what is it said earlier, that the wrath of God is coming. Or in Exodus, when it talks about that you shouldn't build idols, that he says, I am a jealous God. We don't need to fear that wrath, that jealousy anymore, because we are righteous through Christ. And God's presence dwells within us so that we may represent his presence to the world. God's presence is going out into the world, not through a building anymore. It's not through the temple. It's not through one place. It's through us. What would, it ha- what would happen if we truly grasped this? Sought the Lord tr- with all of our hearts. Make a choice today to begin to seek Him. Not just to believe in Him, not just to have him as as some concept in the back of your mind but to seek him with all your heart with all your mind with all your soul and with all your strength what if we did that what if we removed the idols from our lives the distractions the phones Netflix I'm talking to myself on that one Phones are a big one. Phones are a big one. I think we've all, not okay, maybe not everybody. Some of you are holier than the rest of us, but smartphones can be an idol in your life. Constantly checking your status updates, constantly updating everything on Instagram and Facebook and everything else that I don't know about because I'm not that connected. Those can, that can be an idol. Don't let that be an idol. Honestly, if your phone is an idol, get a flip phone for a while. I'm, like, I'm not joking. Don't let that be something that becomes something more important to you than you're seeking the Lord and your relationship with Him. That's a real idol of this culture. Remove the idols. The pleas and the cries of the culture around us that tell us about everything else that we should care about, what should matter to us. What should matter to us more than God. Remove those idols at all costs. Don't let the temple fall into ruin. 
God wants to reach this world with his truth, and he does it through the temple. And today that's you and me. Don't let it fall into ruin. Don't let idols be put in the place of your deepest longings. Let it be a place that represents the presence of God because you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I want to invite the band to come back up. Before we close our service, singing a song together, I want to, we're going to take up the offering really quick. Now, something we didn't have time to get into that I would have liked to dive into is right after where we just read, if you keep reading from verse 8 uh, on to about verse 13, I believe, uh, you see how Josiah rebuilt the temple. And he did it through free will givings of the people. And we know that church is not this building. It's a pretty nice building. I like it. God's, this isn't the church. We are the church. But I do want to encourage you and remind you that it's through this building today that we're gathered here. It's through this building that people have been, are being trained, molded, encouraged, strengthened to be the temple of God in the world that they're called to be. Preparing us, it's through this building that God is preparing us to do his work and to be his representatives, his ambassadors to the world. And so that to me is important. And ultimately, that's what you're investing in when you give. Not the building itself, but in what God wants to do in the people that come through it. So I'll I'll just pray really quickly over that before they pass the hats. Father, we thank you for what you're doing, what you're building in our hearts, in the people that you call your church, that you call the body of Christ. Lord, we ask that every cent be blessed, be used by your wisdom and for your glory as you would have it to be used in Jesus' name. Amen.